1: Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki, fresh out of the hospital and right into your ears. (laughs) What's going on, man?
2: I I suppose that's true. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's that's true.
1: We're on a good roll these days. That's good. Yeah. You know, when I eventually put these on YouTube, people are going to notice that fresh haircut you have. It's very like FPJ. (laughs) And for those of you who are too young to know that reference, that's Freddie Prince Jr., and uh, I, didn't, I didn't realize these are going on YouTube, but uh, well, have, yeah, I'm just stockpiling myself more. <laughs> no, I think this is perfect. Yeah. You got the headset on. You're ready to play <laughs> Call of Duty afterwards. FPJ. Just, who knew he was a physician? Yeah. <laughs>
2: um,
1: okay. We're going to talk about a new practice changing guideline for your ticker today. It's all about heart health. We're going to get into that in just a second. But first, a few announcements. Thing one, of course, the Barbell Medicine app is available in the Apple App Store. This podcast is probably brought to you, you know, indirectly by the Barbell Medicine app, and it's free. And we have all of our training materials, all of our resources. You can get all that stuff, both the free stuff. And then if you need some extra help, we do that, too, uh, through the app just uh, go to the Apple app store and search barbell medicine. You can get that. If you are a green bubble person, green text person, we'll get, we'll get to you soon. I promise it's in the works and we will announce it. I will. (laughs) We're not just going to release it and then hope you find it. And uh, yeah, if uh, you are looking for the rest of our information, we got articles over on our website. We have a bunch of videos on YouTube. We got podcasts. So this is your first podcast you've ever listened to in the barbell medicine series. Well, We got 190 at least other ones. And I think that count is off because all of the pain and rehab ones I put as different numbers until I realized that like no one was keeping track. So I think, I mean, we're over 200. But I did want to pose this question to you. When we get to the actual like, I'm going to name it episode 200. I feel like we need to celebrate.
2: Mm, We didn't do anything for
1: our century. You know, the 100. (laughs) But 200 means, and we've been doing this for almost four years.
2: Has it been that long, man? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm I not do, sure I, how we should celebrate, but uh, I trust you. <laughs> should we
1: shut day? it all down? Just be like, <laughs> it's been too long.
0: <laughs> just start at the I beginning, you know. Reset. I think
1: what we'll do is we'll just get a bunch of we'll just get a bunch of guests to come in and uh, tell us how cool we are. And I think think that's, yeah, that people will really enjoy hearing from other people besides us. Also, um, in case you missed our last podcast, I was on the August Research Review and the podcast before that was on progressive loading. We actually have an article up on the website by Dr. Austin Baraki and myself on progressive loading. If you're trying to figure out how much weight should you add to the bar and when and like why, that's the article that is our uh, Magnus Opus on the topic uh, as of this moment. So check that out. That is linked in the description below. And also, if you want to come to one of our live in-person seminars, we have a gaggle of seminars coming up. I mean, it went from zero to hundred real quick. We've got at least four live events scheduled in the next calendar year. Uh, so it will be in Los Angeles in November for our regular two-day health and performance Barbell Medicine Seminar. That's myself, Dr. Baraki, the rest of the BBM crew. If you want to lift, you want to learn about all things pertaining to health and performance, that's your seminar. Um, We also have another one of those seminars in Atlanta at Alpha Strength and Power. That's in February of 2023. And then we'll be in uh, New York at CrossFit South Brooklyn in May. And our pain and rehab folks, they're back on it as well. They're going to be in Miami in January and can confirm that Miami in January is quite pleasant. We were there. What was that? Was that 2020? Was that before the world shut down?
2: I think it was 19 uh, when we were there for New Year's.
1: Yeah, I think it was 19 to 20. Oh, yeah. That was the the turnover, yes,
0: yeah. <laughs> I just am still,
1: I'm still salty about that because my toothbrush ended up on the living room floor when that the people broke into our Airbnb and stole my dop and Tom's and all Tom's electronics. But I was really bummed about that uh, about that toothbrush. Um, in any case, yeah. So we have uh, a couple live events. If you're interested in attending. Um, they're meant for health professionals, fitness professionals, or just training enthusiasts or people who are training curious. I mean, we've had people who've literally never lifted come to our seminars before, which is really cool because then they can do the squat, the bench, the deadlift, the press, learn all about about the benefits, how to structure it. And I, you know, people say when it's their like introduction to this, they leave the seminar. They're like, I feel ready to do this. And I'm like, well, well, good, because we just, you know, we gave you the, you know, all the the keys to the city, and uh, yeah, people seem to really like it. Um, okay, Austin, we're we're gonna do this, man. We're gonna trigger the internet. I feel it. This podcast is really gonna. If if people listen to it, who are the carnivore bros, the anti seed oil bros, the cholesterol don't ma- doesn't matter bros. I feel like, uh, but but I don't know why they'd be listening to this podcast. You know what I'm saying? They, like, they kind of know where we stand, so why would you listen? But hey, if you're here, we're happy to have you. We're going to talk about this uh, for the next uh, 30, 45 minutes. So again, this podcast, episode 191, I'm here with Dr. Austin Baraki, is all about a new practice-changing guideline for your heart. Okay, this came out at the European Society of Cardiology Conference that was, was two weeks ago or something like that. This pa- The paper was presented, then I think it came out maybe a week beforehand. So Austin, what was the paper and what is this What is this about?
2: So the title, for those who are interested, it was published in the August 22 edition of the European Heart Journal, um, and it's an open access article, meaning it's one of those rare scientific papers that you can actually just look up and read. You don't have to uh, pay or access through other means. And so the title of this paper is Lipoprotein Little A in atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and aortic stenosis, a European atherosclerosis society consensus statement. So the European atherosclerosis society's consensus statements are kind of a big deal in the cardiovascular world. We've cited several of their other ones in the past on, on other topics. And so this one is on a topic that we have actually never explicitly discussed uh, in any of our content, in any of our stuff on relating to cholesterol, heart disease, any of those things. And, and it's principally because this is a very, uh, relatively speaking, a younger and rapidly, more rapidly evolving area of research. And um, we didn't really have enough information or consensus on the topic to like comment really confidently on it. And, and I still wouldn't say that this episode is going to be full of very confident claims. Um, but it is, I think, reached a point where it is definitely important enough for us to address specifically specifically. Um, and in addition, because it is something that for the healthcare uh, uh, practitioners out there, my bias, I'm starting to come around to the idea that this should probably be impacting uh, uh, practice, which means it is justifiable to talk about at this point.
1: Yeah. And then, you know, if you're listening to the Barbell Medicine podcast, you're, you're, you're at least health curious, right? You're, you're like interested certainly in your own health, but then also maybe like pro-longevity. Let's live like a full and complete life and, you know, compressed morbidity, all of that stuff. And so this is at some point going to become relevant to either your life, your client's life, your parents' lives, like what, whatever. So this is, this is uh, yeah, pretty interesting. I, I do think that they could have done a better job with the title. Like you just missed opportunity for like lipoprotein Lil A. Coming, coming at you with the, <laughs> with the, with the new drop. And it's like, how many syllables are in that title? Anyway, all right. So let's. We're gonna get into what lipoprotein little A is here in a second. But first, uh, since we are talking about quote unquote heart health and a particular uh, subsection of that, known as atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, which we abbreviate often as ASCVD. What is that, Austin? Like, what does that umbrella term refer to? And you know, just give people a lay of the land here.
2: Yeah, so the heart uh, will start real big picture. It's a very complex organ, and so when you say somebody has heart disease, you know, if to say to take that literally, there are lots of different diseases that people can have that that impact the heart. The one that mo- people most often are describing is this: is atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease impacting the heart. Although this can extend throughout the entire body, and so atherosclerosis is this process by which. The blood vessels that carry blood either to the heart muscle itself or to other areas of our body, which is obviously very important to deliver oxygen to deliver nutrients so our organs can can live and function and adapt and do all the cool things they do. When those vessels become hardened, uh, they become thickened. And that process is related to the deposition of Uh, uh, fatty uh, components to include cholesterol, which develop into plaques in the walls of our blood vessels. And that can cause uh, inflammation and narrowing of the blood vessels over time. It can cause these plaques can rupture and uh, a clot can form in that area. And that can block off blood flow completely. That's when things like what is uh, known commonly as a heart attack or more uh, clinically as a myocardial infarction happens where not enough blood flow is actually getting to the heart muscle and part of your heart muscle can potentially die if that's left untreated. This can also impact other areas of the body if these plaques uh, develop into the blood vessels that feed your brain. And a similar process can happen. A heart attack of the brain is what people know as a stroke. Um, or similarly, blood vessels that feed other areas of the body, in particular the, the legs, um, such that people can end up uh, having progressively impaired or, you know, completely cut off blood flow to, um, to the lower uh, limbs, um, such that that can lead to a need for amputation and, and other kind of emergency interventions and things like that to, to save people's lives. So atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease is and remains the leading cause of death worldwide and in the US. Um, it beats cancer as number two, which is number two. And it beats this by a fair amount, and it has been that way for a long time. Um, The rates of this cardiovascular disease you know, death from cardiovascular disease have actually been decreasing on a like per 100,000 population basis in the US, for example, which is related to a variety of, of uh, you know, public health interventions and medications and all things that, that, that we um, are doing a little bit better nowadays. But it is still, you know, for sure, the, the most common cause of death. And even if you don't die from it, the complications of it that don't kill you that you may continue to live with, for example, somebody could have a heart attack that doesn't kill them, but that can weaken the heart muscle enough to leave them with long-term heart failure, which is another extremely common situation. I have several patients that I'm treating for heart failure in the hospital as we speak right now. It's a very common thing that I that I deal with or long-term complications of stroke or long-term complications of these amputations, et cetera, et cetera. So ultimately big picture, you know, our blood vessels are really important to take oxygenated and nutrient-rich blood to various areas of our body, when those become hardened, thickened, inflamed, and potentially blocked off by plaques and clots, um, then that can cause potentially catastrophic complications to include death or long-term disability. So that's what we're talking about here.
1: 10 out of 10, would not recommend. Yes. Uh, Now, there are a ton of different risk factors for heart disease, um, and broadly, you can categorize them into non-modifiable ones so things like age genetics family history you can't really do anything about those but they definitely contribute and you know you could come up with various risk scores or hazard scores um you know depending on how uh clinically you know biased your research is if you're reading a bunch of medical papers you're going to be very familiar with those things if you're reading mainstream media articles maybe maybe not so much but in in very in any case the non-modifiable risk factors are just in general, things you can't really do anything about. Whereas there are modifiable risk factors that do kind of change the uh, change the playing field here. And the American Heart Association just came out with their Essential Eight. This is an update to about a twelve year old uh, sort of uh, piece that they put together. It was like the Essential Seven or the you know. So they added uh, another component. So there are eight components that are modifiable. Uh, or that modify your risk for heart disease. So these include things like a healthy diet, so that health-promoting dietary pattern we always talk about, that's that, uh, participation in physical activity, so having sufficient levels of physical activity, which does include resistance training, avoidance of nicotine, uh, healthy sleep, which is a huge umbrella thing. Just like, yeah, you should sleep. We're like, oh, thank you for that, American Heart Association. Um, maintaining a healthy weight and body composition, healthy levels of blood lipids, uh, and blood glucose and also blood pressure. So, these are uh, things that you can actually modify via behavioral change and and uh, various other processes to reduce your risk of heart disease. And we're going to focus today on blood lipids. I've linked this Essential Eight paper also in the description below if you want to read up more on that. And there are some cool handouts and graphics associated with that. But we're going to focus on Uh, healthy levels of blood lipids and in particular a very specific marker of blood lipids Um, so when we say lipids austin and we're talking about blood work you know i gotta go get my bloods done before the doctor uh they're gonna do a standard lipid lipid panel in general if you ask for one like nobody's gonna say no um so what's in that what is it measuring and then what is this lipoprotein little a so like let's tie the room together here
2: yeah. So so lipids is just a fancy chemistry term describing things that don't dissolve in water. And uh, that biologically refers to things like fats and cholesterol and, and a variety of other substances. And since our bloodstream is mostly water, um, those substances don't dissolve in our blood. And so in order to be transported around, they need to be carried on various proteins that will help them get around, because otherwise they'd have a really hard time not being able to dissolve in the water-based bloodstream. And so here we're going to focus mostly on cholesterol as the kind of lipid uh, uh, substance that needs to be carried around on these proteins. And so these proteins are known as lipoproteins, and there's a variety of them. Um, And they're classified by their density, and so there are, for example, high-density lipoproteins. That's known as HDL. That may show up on your lip, on your cholesterol panel. There are low-density lipoproteins. Those will show up as LDL on your lipid panel. And so when you go and you get a regular old cholesterol panel measured, it will measure, uh, per, at least in the US, and we'll, and we'll use US units, even though these units will change in other countries. But a basic cholesterol panel will measure the total mass, the total amount of cholesterol in uh, per you know in terms of a concentration. Um, So in the, in the U S labs, it'll be milligrams of cholesterol per deciliter of blood. So milligrams of cholesterol per like a 10th of a liter of blood. Uh, It'll measure the total amount of cholesterol, as well as the amount of cholesterol being carried by your high density lipoproteins. That's known as HDL dash C HDL cholesterol. It'll measure the amount of triglycerides. Uh, again, in, a, in terms of a concentration, milligrams per deciliter, or again, um, that's at least in, in U.S. units. And then uh, there are various estimation or calculation formulas that will use those numbers to estimate, calculate a um, low-density lipoprotein or an LDL cholesterol. And so we have talked about this on pr- our prior episodes, and I've discussed these in uh in, in detail in the three-part cholesterol article series on our website that we've gotten a lot of great feedback on. People have found that very useful and, and applied it to their own situations, which is, which is great. And so if this is all brand new to you, I would recommend you go to those articles, particularly start with just Google barbell medicine, cholesterol part one, and, and take it away from there. It's written for general audience, regular folks um, to, to try to understand that. Um, and so that is the most t- common or typical cholesterol panel that is measured Um, in standard practice. There are tons of additional lipid-related markers that can be measured, and these have wildly varying utility. Some are uh, Much more useful, and some are completely unhelpful, but are often done anyway because it makes it seem like you're doing more thorough testing and people are willing to pay for stuff that seems more thorough and more fancy and more advanced as well. Um, And so ultimately, again, we've talked about how this process works as it relates to cardiovascular disease in our prior podcast on the topic. I think one of them we even had uh, Alan Flanagan um, on as well, or Dr. Flanagan, newly minted PhD. Yeah, and, and this is also discussed in our articles. And so the idea here is that the standard cholesterol panel measures the amount of cholesterol being carried on these lipoproteins in a given volume of blood. However, the actual risk of cardiovascular disease or heart disease developing Um, as it relates to cholesterol, has more to do with the number of these lipoprotein particles, the concentration of these lipoprotein particles that are circulating in the blood. The higher the concentration of these lipoprotein particles, particularly the low-density lipoprotein, the LDL particles, the higher the concentration, the more of those particles we have around, and the longer that exposure is happening for over the course of your life, the higher somebody's individual risk of heart disease will be from the standpoint of cholesterol. Again, as you mentioned, there are a bunch of other risk factors that can contribute to influence drive heart disease risk. But insofar as, you know, we ultimate pathway for plaque to develop in the arteries is for these particles, uh, these lipoprotein particles to get into the walls of our blood vessels, deposit their cholesterol that generates a downstream cascade of inflammation and plaque development and things like that, the higher the the, uh, amount of these particles there are swimming around. Uh, And the longer that goes on for the higher the risk. And conversely, the earlier in life we can get these down into healthy ranges, the earlier in life we can get them under control, the lower somebody's risk is. And this is also mirrored by genetic data. People who are born with genetically high levels, they develop heart disease very early in life. And people who are born genetically with extremely low levels have upwards of a 90 plus percent reduced risk of developing heart disease ever in their lifespan, which is Mm -hmm. kind of awesome if you have that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, just just to reiterate, we're not talking about the... The size of the particles, we're not talking about any ratios like HDL to LDL ratio or any sort of other numbers. We're literally just talking about the amount of LDL, low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, in your blood. The more that you have, the higher that number is, which you can deduce from a standard lipid panel, portends a greater risk of cardiovascular disease atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And so if you were to get a standard lipid panel, so no additional testing, specialized testing, the executive physical or whatever, you know, you send out a couple thousand dollars and get all these, you know, other tests pulled back, you could get a pretty good picture of what somebody's risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease just based on a standard lipid panel. If their LDL was through the roof, you'd be like, huh, I feel like they're at an increased risk you may want some additional testing just to kind of clarify if there's any gray zone in there. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So this new practice changing guideline, uh, like like you mentioned earlier, is about lipoprotein little a, which I will refer to as little a because, you know, he's dropping the hottest, hottest beat since 2022. And <laughs> what is lipoprotein little a? Because we've got LDL, we've got HDL, you know, that people are familiar with. They've also probably heard of triglycerides. But what is lipoprotein little a?
2: Okay so yeah the caveat up front this is a real this is the rapidly evolving area of research that we're talking about this has changed pretty dramatically over the past 10 to 15 years and so things will change over the coming years we may say some things that end up kind of needing refinement over time but i think we're at a point where we have enough information um uh, to to speak on this topic and try to bring people up to date and at least it was enough for me to to impact my practice in the past couple years as well so um As I mentioned uh, earlier, we are most concerned with, from a general, you know, cholesterol panel, we're most concerned with the low-density lipoproteins, the number of those uh uh, particles there are in the blood the regular cholesterol panel doesn't actually measure how many of those low-density lipoprotein particles there are in the blood it measures how much cholesterol is being carried on them and that gives us an imperfect estimate of that again as you said when that number is sky high somebody's ldl cholesterol is 300 or something milligrams per deciliter 400 plus that's like getting into real you know high-risk territory um and it's safe to assume in a lot of those situations that their number of particles they have to carry that amount of cholesterol is also quite high. Um, there are some people where there's some mismatch between the two numbers, but that's getting into a little bit more advanced territory. The bottom line is that we're most concerned with these low-density lipoprotein particles. These particles are made in the liver. And uh, in general, the way we identify them is both by their density, but also because they have this kind of surface protein on them. And the surface protein is called ApoB. Um, and APOB is an example of a surface protein on these lipoprotein molecules that basically directs that where they go and what they can do in the body. That's what interacts with things in the tissues that facilitate its kind of action. Um, different lipoprotein particles, like HDL, for example, that has a different protein on its surface that drives it to do different functions. That has something called APO capital A on it. And so um, those Kind of surface proteins, be it APO B or APO capital A or whatever the case is, um, can influence how these particles function and how they behave in the body. Now, in recent years, we have identified uh, the risk that is conferred by this particle called lipoprotein little A, and we just say little because it's a lowercase A. And the reason it's called that is because it is very, very similar to a regular old low-density lipoprotein or a regular old LDL particle that has an ApoB on it. But in addition, it has this additional little protein on it called Apo little a. And when we say little again, it's just a lowercase, Apo little a. So if you take an LDL particle, which normally has ApoB on it, and the liver makes and spits out an Apo little a, part of a protein onto the surface of this particle as well, suddenly we have a different kind of species of uh, lipoprotein called lipoprotein little a. Um, and so that's the bottom line particle that we are talking about in this guideline. And the reason it is being discussed and the reason it has a whole guideline around it the reason it's important is because it actually plays a pretty significant role in heart disease risk when it is elevated and it is not something that would be measured or show up on a regular cholesterol panel this particle actually came into a little bit of you know public awareness in the news a couple years back when uh, what's his name bob bob harper the the guy who was the fitness coach for the biggest loser Who would otherwise, by all appearances, be quite healthy and presumably had a pretty good-looking cholesterol panel, actually had a heart attack, and he was found to have actually markedly elevated levels of lipoprotein little a, and that was thought to be a pretty major contributor or driver of his risk of having a heart attack when everything else seemed to look okay.
1: Yeah, so this is like a protein tag basically just attached to the lipoprotein, and as my recollection, which is imperfect, of course, uh, about 20, 25 years ago, we developed tests to actually identify, you know, seek out this protein in a blood test. Now it's not on the standard lipid panel, but it, what the, the, test was available and mostly used in research just to kind of see like, Oh, what does this lipoprotein little a do? And like, what is it associated with? Um, you know, that was 20, 25 years ago. And over the interim time um, it's been correlated more and more and more and strongly with an increased risk of, you know, heart disease. And so I think now what you're describing is this critical mass of like data and like how it's been sorted and, and, and chopped up or whatever to say, wow, we can actually measure this and sort of get a better picture of people who might not actually have like an abnormal lipid panel results, but also, but still be at an increased risk of cardiovascular disease just because of the lipoprotein little a levels. Is that kind of where we're going with this? Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think because of how complex the biology is of this molecule, Um, You know, regular old LDL is nice and simple. It has one ApoB on the surface, one of those proteins, and even if we we can order a separate blood test just called an ApoB level, and since there's one of those ApoBs on every LDL, if you measure just the number of ApoBs in the blood, then boom, you have a particle count for how many total low-density lipoproteins there are in the blood. With Apo little a, it adds a lot of complexity because people can express this protein to varying in varying ways. And the protein itself is kind of like a, it has like a tail, and that tail can have varying lengths. And that is something that is actually quite difficult to discern on a, a, you know, from a laboratory measurement standpoint, you have like, you're measuring this one particle, but it looks a bunch of different ways in different people. So how do you have like a standardized test for this kind of thing? So that's why like early on, the tests were not great. And we had a hard time teasing out like, how does this actually relate to risk? Whereas now more, you know, we have better and better tests that um, are able to more accurately measure the number of particles we have, um, which is the preferred way of testing this um, in the blood. And that, is now being shown obviously more and more tightly correlated with long-term risk.
1: Okay. So if you have, what, what is a normal level of lipoprotein little a and like what's elevated and what does that mean for somebody who has it?
2: Yeah. So this is, uh, a I think that with all of these uh, lipoproteins, even on a regular cholesterol panel, if you were to measure an ApoB level, if you're to measure a lipoprotein little a level, any of these things, in in medicine unfortunately we often have to like somewhat arbitrarily dichotomize into normal and abnormal even though a lot of things function on spectrums and so this is just like these other things a spectrum in terms of, you know, it's, it's a continuous spectrum of risk, meaning the higher you go from very, very low levels, there is detectable increases in risk over the over the very long term. Um, however, we do have to set some some numbers someplace to give people a sense. Now, the only other caveat I'll add is that there are two different ways of measuring these lipoprotein little A-levels. And I mention it because depending on if people get them tested, they may get one result or the other. If it is measuring the mass of these particles, um, you know, how the, 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 the mass of them will be reported, at least in the US, in milligrams per deciliter, kind of like we measure the mass of cholesterol on a regular cholesterol panel. The other way that it can be measured, and this is actually a little bit more preferable, is to measure the number of these particles there are in the blood rather than their mass. And if you measure the number of particles, then it gets reported in nanomoles per liter, N-M-O-L per liter. And so depending on which units you get um, on your lab test, you can tell whether, oh, this is measuring the mass of them or this is measuring the number of particles. Both have utility if I had to, you know, uh, to to pick. I would prefer the one that measures the number of particles, but both can tell us basically what we need to know. So if we're measuring um, the mass of particles, if the LP little a or lipoprotein little a level is below 30 milligrams per deciliter, we feel pretty good about that. That seems to be pretty clearly in a low risk range. As levels increase above 50 milligrams per deciliter, um, then we start to get more concerned area in between, somewhat of a gray zone. That's the best, you know, I can do short of giving somebody just a completely, you know, arbitrary dichotomy right in the middle of, say, 40 or something like that. So below 30, I feel good. Above 50, the higher it goes, I feel worse. And then in between is a little bit of a gray zone. That's if we're measuring the mass in milligrams per deciliter. If we're measuring the number of these particles, again, it'll be reported in nanomoles per liter. And roughly 2.5 times higher um, will be those numbers. So the bottom end of the range instead of 30 is more like 75 nanomoles per liter. If it's 75 nanomoles per liter or less, we feel pretty good about that. If it's 125 nanomoles per liter or higher, again, 2.5 times ish 50, um, then we feel per- increasingly more concerned the higher it goes above that. And in between that range is a bit of a gray area. So those are kind of the ranges that we think about depending on whether we're measuring mass of these particles or the number of them uh, that are in the blood, just depending on the test that you have available to you.
1: So if you have a high number of these, you know, Lpa, LP little a particles, you're mm-hmm. over 125 nanomoles per liter. Why is that a problem?
2: Yeah, so as it turns out, these particles, um, it their biology, again, is not perfectly understood for sure it's very complex it is unclear the physiolog any physiological role that they may have there's been some hypotheses about like do they play a role in scavenging oxidized lipids from other places in the body do they have a role in wound healing do they have a role in there's a variety of things that are thrown out there Ultimately, though, what we what seems to be the case is that the higher these concentrations are, and the higher the longer they're elevated for, similar to regular old lipoproteins, um, that confers a higher risk of multiple types of cardiovascular disease. So these appear to be pro-inflammatory; um, they are pro-thrombotic, meaning they promote clotting. They are pro-calcifying, and in general, they ultimately seem to drive atherosclerosis. Um, and so the, uh, these effects, again, are thought to be related to these particles' ability to carry certain types of lipids that are uh, chemically modified that are oxidized, which is a fancy chemical uh, chemistry term that we don't need to get into great detail on. But these are lipids that prob- that seem to have, like particularly if they get deposited into vessel walls and things like that, have a much stronger propensity um, to drive the inflammation cascade and contribute to plaque development and, and plaque rupture and things like that. And as it turns out, that on a per-particle basis, these seem to be riskier than regular old LDL particles, which is a problem since they don't show up on regular cholesterol tests, regular cholesterol panels.
1: Right. So little A's dropping the hottest beats and the most aggressive beats in your vessel wall. (laughs) Compared to LDL. so But the, but that, I think, actually becomes a more clarifying statement, right? So the standard lipid panel, you get an LDL level, right? It's not measured directly or whatever. It's kind of a, a – it, it is an indirect measurement. Um, it gives you kind of a picture of what you're doing there. And so you could have somebody with a normal LDL, you know, it's, but, but you're still mm, – I don't mm, – I'm not – as confident as I'd like to be. And so you can order additional tests to sort of clarify uh, you know, if, if somebody is at an increased risk or not. And so you could, for example, order an APOB, apolipoprotein B, and all of these LDL and other ather- atherogenic, so causing maybe or, or contributing to plaque formation. Uh, you could order a test that measures all of those particles, and that would give you additional information. And then you could order an additional test lipoprotein little a in this case to get even more inform- information which you wouldn't have otherwise gotten so like what in your view like what is the difference between these these things lipoprotein little a apolipoprotein b ldl as for, from like a clinical standpoint because you, you can get them at different levels of the game right so like how, do, yeah. how are you looking at this picture
2: so i think that oh you can look at this f- over the course of the past hundred years, say, and see how things have evolved. So like the the earliest, the first thing that was ever identified was, oh, you know, if we measure just total cholesterol levels in the blood, The the mass of cholesterol total without any further refinement. There is some relationship between that and heart disease risk, especially as levels get much, much, much higher. And then as the science advanced and the clinical kind of lab chemistry abilities improved, we were able to differentiate instead of just total cholesterol on everything. We were able to identify, oh, in particular, higher levels of these. Uh, uh, in particular, these low-density lipoproteins, these LDL particles, um, the the more cholesterol they carry, that seems to be the more tightly related to risk rather than overall total cholesterol. And then it was refined even further where we're like, oh, the total number of LDL particles um, rather than the amount of cholesterol they carry seems to be the biggest driver of risk. We're refining it even more. And the best way to estimate the total number of LDL particles is by measuring this ApoB level. So this is providing additional refinement. And now we have this like cousin... Uh, type lipoprotein of LDL, known as lipoprotein little a, which also confers risk on its own, kind of independent of um, regular old, you know, ApoB, regular old uh, LDL particles. And so this is kind of another way to assess for, um, you know, additional risk factors that would not be detected through routine testing. So you can get a regular old cholesterol panel, again, that'll measure the amount of cholesterol being carried on these lipoproteins, a more refined measurement would be the number of them that there are, that would be best done with an ApoB level. And then to get additional, you know, this kind of cousin independent risk of lipoprotein A that needs its own separate measurement.
1: So would it be possible for somebody to have a normal calculated LDL, a normal apolipoprotein B level, but an abnormal elevated level of lipoprotein little a? I believe so. Yes. Yeah, I believe that's what I've, that's what I've read as well. So it's like the whole thing. It's again, if you have somebody with a wildly elevated LDL, like you don't really need to go any further. (laughs) You've kind of, you've already identified, Wow, there's some increased risk here, but if it's kind of in that gray zone, it's not really elevated, but you still have additional questions, you can order additional testing. And it sounds like where we're getting is that, yeah, there's further levels of refinement with these additional tests. So here's the question, Austin, what determines how much lipoprotein little a I've got floating around like how do i get this how do i avoid it what's going what's going on there
2: yeah that's ultimately the the bottom line that we would all like to know of course and so um on our previous podcast relating to cholesterol, we talked about all the lifestyle factors that can influence blood lipid levels. Uh, we talked about dietary factors, you know, the balance of saturated and unsaturated fats in the diet, the amount of fiber in the diet, insulin resistance, body fat levels, um, all these other kind of things that can influence it. With lipoprotein little a, it seems that at least 90% of um, the amount of this that there is in the blood seems to be uh, conferred by genetics. And it turns out that, in more or less approximately people will achieve their adult level of this in the blood by around five years old, uh, which is scary, right? (laughs) Uh, There is there can be some a little bit further increase from there. But in general, that's kind of more or less an age where people will be expressing this kind of gene fully to the extent they're going to express it and have essentially their their adult levels. There can be some impact of diet, uh, which is a little bit paradoxical, or I don't know if paradoxical is the right word. It's just interesting in that it is Precisely the opposite of the dietary factors that draw, that influence regular, uh, uh, you know, LDL and regular cholesterol panel information. So levels can fluctuate at eh, 10, 15% or so, something like that, where uh, consuming a low carbohydrate and high saturated fat diet will tend to decrease levels of lipoprotein little a a bit maybe 10%, something like that. Um, whereas we know that that will markedly increase levels of the other lipoproteins, the increased levels of LDL, for example. And so, you know, somebody might think, oh, well, maybe I should do that kind of a diet to lower my LP little A. Well, as it turns out, there are like quadrillions of LDL particles in the blood. And if you're markedly increasing that by pursuing that kind of a diet, the increase in risk that you get um, from by significantly increasing LDL levels may outweigh a small decrease that you get by lowering LP little a. So I would not recommend that kind of dietary approach. And even independently of just like hypothesizing, oh, it seems like that might work. We can just look at, again, actual outcomes and see that people actually do worse when they pursue that kind of a diet on a number of fronts.
1: Well, yeah. And then additionally, when you go to lower lipoprotein little a, when you try to do that, particularly with pharmaceutical interventions, it seems to be like a critical mass it, you need to lower them by like 40 or 50% to get a lot. the needle to move. Yeah. So like, all right, <laughs> yeah. if you lowered it 10% by the diet, it's like, oh, yeah, okay. It's, it's kind of like pissing in the ocean or farting in the wind. Yeah. Like, what, what are you doing? And in yeah. addition, you're likely increasing your risk from other factors. So it's like, don't rob Peter to pay Paul here from a dietary yeah. component. But it is interesting that that does affect these levels. And actually, there's going to be some more interesting stuff with lipoprotein little A with respect to exercise. We're going to get to that shortly. But it seems yeah. like you're saying that this is mostly genetically driven. Like your whatever genetic hand you're dealt, this is kind of determining um, your lipoprotein little A levels. If they're high, so somebody's got a high level, what do you do with that?
2: Yeah, so that's a situation where um, it, it – Because it's so genetically driven and because it is quite tightly related to risk of things like heart attack, stroke, heart failure, heart disease, death, things like that, um, it actually turns out that this is probably the highest genetic driver of heart disease risk that that people can inherit. Um, Of course, there are a variety of other risks that you can kind of acquire over the course of your lifespan, for example, through smoking or something like that. But it's estimated that about 20% of the population have levels that fall into a high risk range, which is a lot. That's a lot. It turns out that this varies by uh, ethnicity. Um, and so those of African ancestry seem to have the highest levels, whereas those of Chinese or Japanese ancestries tend to have the lowest levels. And this is all kind of like on average, there's a fair amount of variability between. And I don't know that we have a great explanation for all of this. Um, but again, like 20% overall is is, is pretty concerning and um if for individuals who have very high levels of this lipoprotein little a it can actually mask uh, not mat- match uh, the risk that people would have if they had Untreated familial hypercholesterolemia, which is the genetic condition that drives your LD, your your LDL to be very high, you can end up with kind of like a risk equivalent if you have very high levels of LP little A, like over 180 milligrams per deciliter or something like that. Remember, I said that like 125 is kind of the up, you know, the upper end where it's like once it gets above this, I'm definitely much more concerned. Um, So there's tons of variables that impact whether people who have high LP, little a levels will actually develop disease. The way this is expressed or the way this ultimately manifests in people is is pretty variable. Um, This is kind of the concept of like disease penetrance is is kind of variable. So not every just like anything else, right? Some people smoke their whole lives and don't get lung cancer. Some people do. Um, Some people have high cholesterol levels and don't develop heart disease. Some people, you know, many people do. But the overall relationship that we see is quite clear and consistent. Um, It is just a bit very, from, from person to person. So the, the, the bottom line here, as far as what do we do about it? How do we, how do we deal with this lipoprotein? And that's kind of where this guideline caught my attention, how it all, you know, over the past eh, you know, year, two years or something like that has, has actually started to impact my practice more. So we've established that uh, this is overwhelmingly genetically driven. You tend to reach your adult levels by about five years of age. And we have this very consistent paradigm in the world of blood lipids as they relate to heart disease that, again, the higher the levels are and the longer they're elevated for, the higher risk that ends up giving you. Conversely, the earlier in life you can get them under control um, and, the, and the longer you can keep them controlled for, the lower your risk. That applies to both regular lipoproteins, regular LDL and lipoprotein little a. And so since you reach your adult levels essentially by age five, the European and Canadian uh, uh, guidelines on this topic for clinicians are now recommending that all adults should get screened once uh, in their lifetime. At some point, get it checked. Uh, The idea being that since it is overwhelmingly genetically driven and all these other lifestyle things have much more minor impacts on levels, if you get it checked once and it is in a, you know, very low risk range below that, like 30 milligrams or 75 nanomoles levels, um, then you're good, right? It's unlikely that this is going to somehow skyrocket into a very high risk range and you're good to go from the standpoint of this particular lipoprotein. Conversely, if you get it checked, and it's very high, um, then that's a situation where it's like, okay, now we're especially concerned about this, this individual as far as their risk goes from the standpoint of this particle. Uh, And so ultimately, what you should end up doing is getting an overall risk assessment done with your with your doctor. Um, they may be familiar with how to do this. Uh, they may be unfamiliar with how to do this in, in, in many cases, I think. So there's a handy resource that's been provided um, that we I'm sure we can link. Um, it literally the web address is LPA Clinical Guidance. Dot com, And this website basically is a way of pulling together multiple of these risk factors to include some of the things that you mentioned um, in the healthy eight. So height, weight, which from which it'll, you know, use a, a BMI, um, your basic lipid panel measurement, your blood pressure measurements, uh, smoking history, diabetes history, family history, things like that. And from that, it'll use validated, you know, risk prediction scores to, to spit out a risk estimate based on your regular risk factors that you have. And then by punching in what is the LP little a measurement that I have gotten, it can say, what is the additional risk that you have from this particle? And... Uh, therefore, what should we do to manage that risk as best as possible? So the bad news is a couple things. One, again, is that this is primarily genetically driven. Um, and the second is that at this very moment, we do not have direct treatments that can very potently lower levels of lipoprotein little A. So I don't have something that can immediately lower, although there are several medications that are in phase two or phase three trials that we're anticipating clinical results from in the coming you know couple years. But the idea is that, hey, we should should not be, you know, if if we have a way to reduce your risk, there's no benefit to letting you live untreated for longer if you have this risk factor. And so that means that even if your other risk factors are not in crazy high risk ranges, so even if your regular cholesterol panel is not in a crazy high risk range, even if your blood pressure is not in a crazy high risk range, since we know that those other things, they drive risk, again, in a kind of continuous fashion, there's not a binary normal abnormal, then that means that the lower we drive all those other things, then that will ultimately help to lower your overall risk. So in other words, the bottom line is for somebody who has very elevated lipoprotein little A levels, I might, not I might, I would probably treat their regular cholesterol panel, treat their reg- their blood pressure, uh, things like that, more aggressively and to lower targets than I would for somebody who did not have a very high lipoprotein little A level. Does
1: yeah, that make you're sense? Reducing, you're reducing the risk factors from other things that we know not only- affect the score <laughs> but that also yeah. we can modify without what we have currently available to us so right effect effectively we lack a you know something we can use to directly attack this thing but indirectly we can make a difference and that's kind of why this consensus came out so
2: exactly exactly so so i think some of the takeaways are like everybody should get screened once and use that information to get a an overall risk Estimate, um, and based on that risk estimate, um, then we can potentially more aggressively treat the regular cholesterol levels. We can treat blood pressure. We can treat things like that, and and some of the important caveats here. So that may mean that somebody receives or is recommended to take something like a statin or take ezetimibe or something like that. And it is true that in some individuals there's variable responsiveness to all of these treatments. But in some people, taking a statin may actually slightly increase their LP little A levels. Again, similar to what we mentioned with diet earlier, is that. Overall, we see risk decrease from these medicines, and that's probably because it has a much more potent effect on lowering the much bigger number of LDL particles in the blood compared to what it does to a slight increase in LPLLA levels. So overall, we're, we're working with the overall balance of risk here. And then some of the other more modern medicines like to include PCSK9 inhibitors and things like that. Those can actually directly lower lipoprotein little A levels a bit but those are extremely difficult to get covered specifically for this reason unless somebody has already had multiple heart attacks or multiple strokes or something like that uh, uh, before so, so medication treatment directed at this lipoprotein we don't have at this very moment although I expect we probably will uh, pretty soon um, but in the meantime you know my concern over somebody who has very high levels of this has to do with their overall atherosclerosis risk for like you know coronary disease of the heart, uh, cerebrovascular disease in the brain things like that and I'm going to treat their other risk factors a lot more aggressively. And then the other thing which we haven't mentioned yet is people with high levels of this. They're also at substantially increased risk of, Something called aortic valve stenosis, which is a, uh, a calcification, a thickening, and a narrowing of one of the valves. In fact, the main valve that lets blood come out of your heart. And so, if that gets narrowed and tightened and limits the ability of blood to come out of your heart, there's a bunch of potential downstream consequences. Like you can start passing out, and you can have develop heart failure, and ultimately it can cause death in 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 uh, in advanced stages. And so, and this can develop because again, you're born with this, and expressing this level by age five, um, you can develop aortic valve stenosis at a much earlier stage in life than people uh, develop kind of -of run-of-the-mill aortic stenosis who don't have high lpa levels if that makes sense yeah
1: yeah it's kind of wild like when i was doing when i read the paper and then i did some you know additional reading when i was looking at particularly the effect of exercise on lipoprotein little a and you see a very similar response that you see with statins there's like a usually a slight bump uh, but not not reliably, but in, in many studies, they show, oh, exercise actually kind of increases lipoprotein little a. But it does significantly lower apolipoprotein B, so it's lo- lowering total LDL levels in the blood, and it lowers those to a greater degree than LP little a is elevated. So the net you know, outcome there is a reduced risk. But the most inter- interesting thing, right? So people are like, what about resistance training? This is barbell medicine. Like, what the hell is resistance <laughs> training do to, to lipoprotein little a? So there's one study. They did this in South Africa. Uh, 18 male bodybuilders 10 of them were anabolic steroid users and eight were non-users and they were doing high volume resistance training over 3,000 met minutes of resistance training per week which uh, that's a lot the lp little a levels were higher than expected uh, so they were uh, around 40 to 50 uh, milligrams per deciliter but the values were significantly higher in those who were not using anabolic steroids and uh there was yeah the mechanism basically they they were saying is that uh some of the recovery processes involved in from resistance training and exercise in general um basically are performed by many of the anabolic agents and so your own like inflammatory cascade and other like innate immune system function are not like taxed as heavily. And so the non-users are effectively need a higher level of LP little a to signal all of these like repair processes and remodeling processes compared to the anabolic steroid users. Now, I don't think that anybody out there with a high LP little a level should be going on anabolic, you know, androgenic steroids. But that was a really interesting story, uh, like study that I I came across. Uh, But it, it does also kind of, corroborate the additional finding that we we talked about before like people on statins if they're looking at a coronary artery calcium score cac score right if you're on statins we know that your cac score may increase and that we usually use a cac score to kind of get further refinement of like well how big a risk do you have for coronary artery disease a very specific type of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and if you're on statins we know that it reduces your risk of having a major adverse cardiac event but your cac score may actually go up and we're like hmm don't know what to do with that well we well, see the same the thing with people thing who exercise a bunch
2: standard thing we've talked about repeatedly of paying attention to actual outcomes than these kind of intermediate kind of step things right
1: yeah which leads me to the last point on this lipoprotein little a it seems like this is like a one and done thing you test it once and and effectively you're, you're trying to figure out like what somebody's risk profile is and like follow-up would would like only be a sort of like a follow-up measurement of that particular type of uh, of lipid would only be indicated if you are using like a PCSK9 inhibitor or something else. And you're trying to see like, am I getting a therapeutic effect based on the dosing, based on the agent I'm using, et cetera. But otherwise, you're kind of like, well, I figured out what it was before and now we're kind of Doing stuff about
2: yeah it. at least at least that's the state of the guidance that we have currently would be if you check it once uh, you know at some point and it's low risk range then yes you're done if it if it's high risk um, then I agree that if you're not doing anything specifically to change that level then you probably still don't need to check it again you should just uh, very aggressively handle all the other risk factors that you can um, However, if you do end up on any kind of a treatment that is intended to lower that, be it a PCSK9 inhibitor, or again, in the coming years, if we have any of these new LP-A lowering therapies that, that uh, come out, uh, or that I expect will come out, um, then sure, that would be a situation where the guidance would change and say, hey, monitor these to see whether you're getting the effect, just like people do with regular cholesterol panels to see if, if uh, the treatment's getting them to, to kind of goal targets and things like that. But But as you mentioned before, I mean based on the genetic data we have, it seems that you need pretty large reductions in lipoprotein little A levels to get a really meaningful decrease in risk. And so again, these like kind of much, much, much smaller fluctuations that have been observed in research uh, in these levels, be it related to, you know, dietary fat content or exercise or, or, uh, you know, statin fluctuations or something, it's really difficult to interpret how much that means, probably not a ton and, and and probably not something that's clinically meaningful compared to what we hopefully will see when we're able to impact these levels much more significantly. Um, but I think that, you know, that some of the take homes are yes, get it, you know, I would, I've been, you know, checking one time in, in my patients and, um, and definitely in those who I have, um, I have, I have some patients who have had early onset aortic valve stenosis. And in those people, I have one who I, you know, in, in, I believe it was in his fifties, uh, developed, uh, aortic valve stenosis and checked and his li- lipoprotein A level was elevated. And so we're treating, even though his regular cholesterol panels, LDL cholesterol, protein, it was not, you know, Crazy high risk range. We're treating that very aggressively (laughs) to try to get much of his residual risk, um, you know, under control as possible. And so that's kind of how I'm handling things in, in practice. And I, and again, I expect that this is going to evolve in the coming years um, as we get more therapeutics, as we get more data, things like that. Um, but I think it's definitely um, at a point where, hey, this is a concerning enough risk factor that, uh, you know, as, as people may guess from some of our prior content, it takes a lot for me to say anything relating to screening that I would do. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, and, that's true. Uh, and so I've, I've kind of reached that point with this one myself
1: so uh so are you gonna get yours checked
2: uh at some point
1: <laughs> yeah i yeah i mean i i'm convinced my, my regular lipid panel was unremarkable super low
2: yeah yeah and let's hope you're not a bob harper type huh
1: i know you're like dude you're lb i'm like no <laughs> yeah that would be interesting be, be a good youtube video would get a lot of a lot of clicks a lot yeah of clicks yeah. but uh yeah okay so uh, this has been episode 191 here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast with Dr. Austin Baraki. Um, all of the links to the papers, the resources, the LPA clinical all that stuff is in the description below our uh, three part cholesterol series, etc. So check those out. And, uh, you know, we'll be back next week and every week here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Dr. Baraki, thank you for joining us. What right, I mean, you. You, you crushed it. You did it. You, you're you're basically. I, I want to induct you into the European Society of Cardiology.
2: Oh, you think man! We, what an honor.
1: Can we get you? Can we get you in that? Just Day Spring Baraki. It just it goes. <laughs> it's yeah. <laughs> That works. Very cool. All right. Well, this has been the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. Again, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Thanks to Dr. Baraki for joining us. Uh, Listen to us next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Before you go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. We'll See you guys later. Bye.